You know how everyone always has a backlog of unfinished video games? Well, you can't not finish them if you don't start them in the first place. Welcome to TripleClick, where we bring the games to you. Today, we are opening up the listener mailbag and answering some of your questions on hot topics, such as how to maximize the fun from your video games. I'm Jason Trier. I'm Kirk Hamilton. And I'm Maddie Myers. And we are back for another <laughs> episode of hey. TripleClick. Hey. Hello. We sure it's are us. here. Hello, my friends, before we get started, just a quick shout out to those of you who are supporting the show by becoming Max Fun members. If you do so, you get our monthly Beans Cast and other bonus special episodes. This month, we are doing a Beans Cast where we spoil and talk about Horizon Zero Dawn. But yes. there's also now a growing backlog of beans cast. <laughs> there is. It's backlog true. of beans. There's a lot of beans. It. Yeah. Call of Duty, Modern <laughs> Warfare. Full of beans. Very, canned beans. They don't they don't really expire. God, so many beans. <laughs> Just um, beans on the shelf. These are all the things people say. <laughs> <laughs> to become a member, go to maximumfun.org slash join and help us make this show. Help Kirk eat his beans. Um, yes. Without further ado, let's get to it. This week, we are doing a burning questions where we take your questions and read them and answer them and discuss <laughs> All them. three of those. Oh, four. Four things. We could just do, do one of them. We could just be like, all right, let's just read them and then move on. Let's just read them. Or we could just answer them and then or, people right, could guess what the question guess was. The question. It's like Jeopardy. Jeopardy. You Jeopardy style. Okay, let's do that. <laughs> That's solid. Maybe next time. No, I think I think we should read um, them. Yeah. Maybe next mm-hmm. time. Um, just a reminder, you can reach us at uh, tripleclick at maximumfun.org. I actually spent a good couple hours today reading through all of the the backlog of questions and emails we've been getting. We have some smart friggin' listeners, you guys. Yeah, I know. It's a little bit intimidating. <laughs> it is intimidating. It's always hard to pick the burning questions. Yeah, they're also burning. <laughs> we have some extremely smart and Great questions. We have a, a big file full of amazing questions, but we've picked out a few to talk about today. So let's get to it, shall we? Um, Maddie, you want to take us, uh, kick us off with the first question? Sure. So this one is from Max, who writes, During the pandemic, I decided to pick up Assassin's Creed Odyssey again. Over the last year, I've jumped in for about 10 to 20 hours at a time, but would always get distracted by another game and put it into the backlog. At around the 45-hour mark, I was in the final stretch of the main story quest, wherein I started to rush, and noticed my enjoyment of the game basically bottomed out. It started to feel like such a slog. I was just going through the motions, skimming dialogue, running from point A to point B, and getting annoyed at every little obstacle that occurred on my path. I got so annoyed and frustrated that I shelved it again, ready to banish it to the backlog indefinitely. After about a week of taking a break, I started to feel the call of ancient Greece again, and I jumped back (laughs) in, but this time I decided to focus on the process of playing it, not even caring if I finished it. And when doing so, I got to some of my absolute favorite parts of that game and found myself loving every minute of it. My question is, what have you noticed about your frame of mind in regards to maximizing your fun, pun intended, with a game, and keeping the magic alive when playing a long game? Any rituals or rules you have for yourself to keep gaming from feeling like a chore? Oh, oh man. Boy. We have so many open world games on the horizon. We yeah. need to we need to start strategizing now. On the now. horizon, you say. <laughs> yeah, that's one of them. <laughs> Kirk, I bet you're you're a big rituals guy. I bet you have yeah, some Yeah, yeah. What's your strategy? 
Yeah, um, I, you know, I do have a few different ways of approaching, especially open world games. I feel like this is an open world game question, so we oh, can, yeah. I guess, kind of limit it to that. Um, I replay games, and I replay open world games, and tend to find that, man, when I'm replaying an open world game that's really long, like a Grand Theft Auto game or Red Dead Redemption, I take such a more grounded approach. And uh, I think just like Max is saying, I, I don't try to just go through the story and move too quickly, and that helps. I also find that I play the game in a different ways at different times of the day. This is something I believe we talked about back on the split screen days. I can't remember. Did we, we talk talked about, the, about different days of the week? Yeah, and like heard. the best day of the week to play games, right? The yeah. best time. Yeah, I don't remember what we decided on. I think my answer was Friday, maybe. I don't, yeah, I, I think don't we remember. all had different days. Yeah, at we the all time. had different days. Yeah, we did. I think that mine was like Saturday morning because it's still early in the weekend. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I think I picked Sunday. And it's morning, yeah. so you like haven't the day hasn't started. So there's still like you're you're not like at the end of the day or at the beginning. <laughs> Um, And I think that, well, and so morning playing for open games I find is nice because that's when I'm much more relaxed. I'm like, "Ah, I'm just going to go do some side quests and wander around. And I think that that kind of playing, it's so weird. It's like the game itself, the design of the game is really in in, like up against you and the way that you're trying to play it. The game is really trying to get you to do stuff. Like all these games, they pull you along, they design things to try to make you do things where for me at least, a lot of the most enjoyable stuff in games, you have to really push against that and slow down and then just like look at this one person. This is something I used to do when I wrote at Kotaku. I would like follow an NPC around. Like in Hitman 2, it's a really fun game to do that in. Just follow an NPC and listen to their conversations. And you have to just ignore all the icons and the whole the whole UX that's telling you, go kill that guy or, you know, go explore that cave. Just stand there and, like, just watch a thing. But I think you can kind of get in the habit of that. And the more mm-hmm. I get myself in the habit, I find I do find that a very rewarding way to play um, open world games, like systemic hmm. games. That's interesting. So um, I almost have the opposite answer, like kind of the opposite answer. Yeah, because, me too. So Go ahead, though. <laughs> I have found that, uh, like many people, uh, I'm sure – when I'm playing something uh, and only playing that and then something else comes uh, out that requires the same machine, the same switch or console or or PC, I will switch to that and then ignore the last one and like it'll just sit Mm -hmm. there abandoned forever, right? Like this is a problem that many people have. Um, I found that the way to actually maximize the enjoyment I'm having with the game and actually see the ending and finish it is to allow myself to not do what Kirk is describing and allow myself to skip side quests and skip random diversions and just stick with the main stuff to the best extent that I can. That's not to say I won't do side quests because I will, but often what I find to get the most out of a game, what I find is like looking up online, if you can, like on Reddit or whatever, the best side quests in that game and like the side quests that you can't miss and only focusing on that stuff. Right, right. Because so many of these open world games have so much menial filler stuff that just exists to like get endorphins in your head by like filling out checklists. Um, and I find that like only focusing on the best stuff helps me actually maximize my enjoyment and stick with it and 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 like finish it. Hopefully, do you not have Max's experience though, where he describes feeling like it's more of a chore because he's created the checklist? Maybe that's just not a problem. No, well, so I feel like it's a chore when I feel obligated to because it's always very tempting to be like oh my god, I have all these exclamation points on my mind, but I have to like systemically knock them all out and get them all mm-hmm. done. That's what makes it feels like a, feel like a chore for me. So to enjoy a game more, I have to let myself be like, no, I'm not going to do every side quest in this game because that would suck. Right. So just to really quickly sort of elaborate, or at least like, th- I think that that's very true, everything that you're saying. And to explain a little bit of what I'm, like the way that I experience this, it's, 
I don't do a completist thing where like I do every single side quest like that. I, I find that to be kind of stressful too and overwhelming and actually will push me away from a game. And the kind of way that I'm talking about playing where you just walk around following people or looking at little details, I do think that I do that more like sometimes on a second time through a game, which is a very different kind of experience where there are times where the first time through, especially in open world games, I'll just say, okay, screw it, like we're going for the finish line and then just power through it knowing that at some point I'm going to play it again, especially if it's a game I really like, like The Witcher 3, I did that the second time through. I like did everything in that game and took way longer. So that is sort of a version of what you're talking about. Mm. Yeah, I think I'm closest to Max of the three of us because I could really relate to this email, especially having just beaten Horizon Zero Dawn for this very show because we're going to record a Beans cast about it. We sure And are. in order to beat that game... I did what Jason described. I Googled the best side quests because I didn't want to miss the best ones. But there are too many side quests in that game for me to have beaten it in a timely fashion, I would say. And I also just focused on the main storyline in that game. But that's not actually how I prefer to play a game like that. And I had to really make myself do it. I don't think I'm a completionist with games, but... I feel like if I allowed myself to be, like if I had infinite time, like that is the that's the place my brain would prefer to someday mm. approach. It's just that I fight against that impulse because I have other things I'd rather do <laughs> and play <laughs> and experience in life as opposed to just playing uh, every Assassin's Creed for thousands of hours. But <laughs> it, I, I'm always having to get myself not to play every single side quest in, in those games and Sometimes I'll play them and I'll be like, that wasn't even a good side quest. Like, why did I do this? So yeah, I don't know. At the same time though, like Max is saying, if I just focus on the main quest, sometimes I'm like, well, what's the point of this? And don't I want to stop and smell the roses as it were? It's hard. I think open world games are hard. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like psychologically hard. So Max has this question of how to keep the magic alive when playing a game. And, you know, you can do that. Like you're sort of the, you know, person trying to coax this plant to keep it from dying you know in the darkness but there does come a point with some games where you just can't like where it's just too much right the game is just it's too long it goes on too long you're just like okay oh my god like is this ever gonna end like there's been four narrative twists and then you're 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 still going and you just kind of see it through to the bitter end because you've had that sunk cost thing and i don't know like there does come a point with a lot of games where you just can't get around that right like i i feel like i i didn't totally feel this way with the last of us too but i know that but that feeling was there and i think it was maybe more there for for maybe one or both of you just that feeling of like ah my fucking god like are we still going i guess at the very end of that game i did feel that way like <laughs> the rattlers end, man you're the just rattler like factor. yeah so you're like still going and it's it's very hard to have the sort of frisson and excitement that the first five hours of that game had by the end partly because the game itself is just so brutal well and, every game the first few hours of every game we're always oh yeah the always the best i mean i think <laughs> what we're describing here is just a game design problem of like these games being extended for way longer than they should be and like Therefore, yeah. always something always gets lost. With Assassin's Creed Odyssey especially, I mean, I love that game. We've talked about that game quite a bit. But the combat is is one of its weaker points in that you have to kind of like lean on a few special abilities that are stronger than all the others and you just keep repeating that them. sweep strike. It's just that one strike where you knock the person and, down and then do a ton yeah, of damage yeah, like exactly. for free. <laughs> it's just that one. Yeah, and... Um, it kind of ruins the experience because it's just monotonous. And so the best games, uh, I'm also thinking of Disco Elysium because that's a game that solves this problem by 
A, yeah. making it so you're, you have a finite amount of time to do everything and you can do a lot in that time, but like you don't feel like, oh my God, I have to do everything right. because you're, the game limits you. And then B, by not just not having any filler or monotony or like boring ass combat that, that extends the game by 20 hours and makes you never want to finish it. So really, I mean, to Max's question, I feel like maybe the answer should be like, play better games or like pick games that resonate with you more. Play games without filler. That is a good point. Divinity Original Sin 2 is a great example where every yeah. fight in that game means something and there I isn't just I was thinking about that. Repetitive. That's like the rare game that I've like actually the rare open world game that I've actually mm-hmm. finished. Well, semi open world. But yeah, like I've yeah. spent 80 hours finishing that game and that game was incredible and like I never got bored. I never felt like the game was to drag a little at the end, but still. Do you think that yeah. Breath of the Wild counts as a game with filler or is this a game without mm-hmm. filler? Let me just throw that out there. I think the moment-to-moment gameplay of Breath of the Wild makes it so there is no filler because the act of exploring and gliding and shooting enemies and using your magnets is so enjoyable that mm-hmm. like I could just do it forever. Okay. I think some games just have that magical feeling. Mario Odyssey is a, a lot of Nintendo games have that magical like design uh, core, those verbs that like really stick with you and just make it fun to keep playing no matter what. What do you think, Maddie? Yeah, and I think filler for me at least, applies to dialogue usually or like side quests that involve people talking about something Mm. you don't care about. Like Like usually that's what I associate that word with is story filler as opposed to like gameplay filler. That's not always true. There's certainly, there's like a separate question about what the idea of filler is in games. But in an open world game, which I suppose Breath of the Wild is, like anytime I'm doing a story quest where I'm like, this didn't matter and I didn't care about anyone involved. Like those are the worst ones when you've completed something, like you've delivered someone's mail or like you've found their (laughs) lost pet or whatever. And you're just like, Mm -hmm. I don't, you didn't need my help. And also this was boring. And Mm, like, I had to go do six things around town just for you for no reason. And I got no, no reward. Yeah. Well, actually to that point, I think breath of the wild, so breath of the wild does have some quests and a few of them are like fillery quests. But you don't even think of those because so much of the game is exploring and finding shrines and solving puzzles and stuff. And that stuff is so enjoyable. Imagine like Horizon with the combat, a game of the Horizon, the combat of Horizon and like more, less, fewer like filler menial delivery quests and more exploring and puzzle solving and stuff like that. And that to me is like a game that would not feel as padded as Horizon does. Yeah, Yeah. it it comes down to central mechanics, right? Like where... Most game, like most side quests are going to be built around just repeating the central mechanic over and over again. So the richer that mechanic, the less repetitive whatever you're doing is going to feel. So in Horizon, even when the story of some of those side quests is pretty good, they like followed that Witcher template. The Witcher is actually a great example too, Witcher 3. Usually the story is cool, but you're going into the woods and killing a Leshen, and then you're going into the woods and killing mm-hmm. a bunch of whatever, um, drowners. And it's always just kind of that you're doing the same stuff over and over again. So if the thing that you're doing is interesting, then there's less filler. And I think that's kind of once you get to a game like Disco Elysium or Divinity Original Sin 2, what you're doing in those games is completely, it's not exactly bespoke. Well, it is in uh, um, Disco Elysium, actually. And in Divinity, it's systemic, but it's still pretty bespoke. Like, each thing that you're doing is unique, so it stops being filler entirely. Um, All right, let's go to the next question. Um, Kirk, you want to take this one? Sure, this comes from Callum, who writes, When I look at contemporary games journalism and the online networking that seems to be required as a part of the job, it seems heavily personality-based. Most games journalists have their own substantial internet presence, and it seems that they're expected to build a public-facing personal brand around their writing, which exists outside of the outlet they're writing for. 
We've also seen the dangers of harassment and doxing that journalists and especially games journalists face online, often over seemingly trivial things that blow up all out of proportion. So my question is this. Is it possible to be a games journalist and be anonymous? For example, writing under a pseudonym, not having Twitter or your photo online anywhere, or is your personal brand an essential part of the job? I'm British, so I read Edge magazine quite often, and it's startling how little the journalist names actually feature. Reviews and previews aren't attributed to any individual at all. Interviews and features have small bylines. Do you think this undermines the importance of authorship, or perhaps it highlights the collective authorship of any institutional journalistic setting, writing, editing, house style, editorial vision, Etc. I have a feeling that you two, especially as active journalists, will have a lot of thoughts on this, though I do too. Um, Jason, why don't you, what do you think of this? Yeah, I have a lot of opinions on this. I actually shocked I feel to pretty hear that. Strongly. I'm shocked that you have a lot of opinions on this question. <laughs> I was never a big fan of Edge doing the whole like masking, by, not having bylines thing because mm-hmm. I feel like that kind of detract. I mean, it, it hurts the reader and the writer in a lot of ways. Um, but anything that uh, what what people have to understand about the modern media industry is that like it's a nightmare. What people need to understand is <laughs> it total is a nightmare. nightmare. No, sorry, but, go ahead. but also <laughs> the one thing that is promising in journalism right now is newsletters and um, uh, writer owned content. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah right. but but I think there's a certain power to having a brand in journalism and having a loyal audience. And we've seen a lot of cases where individuals kind of like exceed the outlet. We've seen that in uh, like politics with Nate Silver or like in um, in sports writing with um, with with Adrian Wojnarowski and like a bunch of other. There are a lot of journalists who become so well known that like they have superseded their brand and they're a lot more powerful than the brand. And that is a really, really good thing for everybody except for fucking corporate executives executives and private equity chats. But like when, I mean, as we've seen, as the three of us have all seen firsthand, no matter how much you might think that you are like, like have ownership over a brand and like are participating and helping making a brand great with your talented, smart coworkers, ultimately the brand is owned by people above you who are like, who might be shitheads or might get bought by a bunch of shitheads who want to run it completely into the ground. And so ultimately the only power you can take in journalism is your own name and what you kind of bring to the table and, and like convincing readers that you are what matters. The writers are what matters, not what, not the brand. So I feel like it would actually, you would be doing to answer Colm's question. I feel like you would be doing a disservice to yourself by writing anonymously as much as you might um, be able to, I guess, dodge the harassment and the doxing and whatnot that comes with it. And even then, like if you became, if you, if you were wrote as author X or something, people would be want to dox you even more because they would want to figure out who you were if you wound up getting any sort of traction with your work. So ultimately, I mean, yeah, I think it's really important for writers and critics and reviewers and journalists to just build their own brand and like, take some power as writers as people i mean you kind of have to now that's more my answer to this question i i see this example i don't know anything about edge as an editorial standard like what what their standards are but to me that smacks of an old school journalism ethos of like oh the editorial board published published this essay for example Mm -hmm, and we're not mm going to put a byline on it the staff published this this recommendation and it's it's from the entire staff and certainly polygon does some things like that and i advocate for certain things like that Kotaku did too Mm -hmm. back in the day for like best of lists and and things like that where we were as a group recommending something but yeah I agree for individual stories it's to me very old school and weird to have like an editorial board or, or something like that be the byline but 
I mean, this is uh, basic as hell take, I guess, but it's really just that the rise of the internet has changed all of this so fundamentally that it's hard for me to even imagine how it would have been for journalists 30 years ago. And in my career as a journalist, I've had to think about this, even though I started out working at a print newspaper, I still had to have a Twitter and think about my personal brand. And that was how I got jobs after the Phoenix went out of business in 2013, because there was no other way for me to get jobs. Luckily, I had a pretty big Twitter following at that time, so I could get freelance gigs. And people knew me as Maddie Myers because they like remembered I worked at the Phoenix, but mostly they knew my my name and didn't remember even where I worked exactly, which was like a weird phenomenon, but one that I think happens to a lot of journalists who manage to carve out a space for themselves. And mm-hmm. I I agree with you, Jason, that it's you pretty much have to do it, but I think I've been a lot more bitter about it because I think experiencing that as a female journalist has been so unpleasant for mm-hmm. me. I not that's not to say you haven't gotten your share of death threats and like other horrible things have happened to you too, but like it's different. having it's my different. personal brand be also about what I look like, what I do in my personal mm-hmm. life, who I'm dating, like all of the fun things about my life that I share casually on this show, mm-hmm. like to get weird ass emails from creepy people about that over the years is always, it's just always part of it for me. And I'm just like, well, that's, it's, it helps my career to do this, but it's, it's definitely weird. <laughs> so I don't know. I have, I have mixed feelings about it, I guess, in the way that I have mixed feelings about the internet mm-hmm. generally and the way that we all have to operate as content creators on the internet yeah you know yeah what do you think oh i have a million thoughts about this (laughs) i mean having gone from writing for kotaku where i guess i kind of built a brand i think that you did it it felt like the thing that really built a brand the removal of mini maps i did that was my brand that was my brand well because it was always like yeah what am i really defined by according to my work some reviews that i wrote but they were all just like reviews that i wrote and then yeah various things like i didn't like mini maps like there's like a hundred people in the world who know that kirk hamilton doesn't like mini maps i think you were defined by posting videos of the harp twins singing (laughs) for a little while the harp (laughs) twins thing sure i think that starting uh split screen when you and i started that jason that was the first that was that really made a difference and like you're talking about maddie uh, on the same sort of subject where when you're having a conversation and you're just sort of sharing your life in a more conversational way that yeah. like is a type of a brand that I think is helpful even though I don't I re- legitimately don't view it in that cynical way like of just like oh this is good for me you know professionally <laughs> like I think yeah. that there is an element to you know I listen to podcasts hosted by people that I don't know and I'm like I love the connection that I feel to this person, even though I understand the nature of it. Like it's that it's just like an important thing and it makes me like them. And I think it it makes them more stable as a creator because there are doubtless lots of people like me who know who they are. And that's just a skill. That's just a type of work that is important to do for the reasons you said, Jason, that that's the only way you can really take power over your own creativity these days. Mm-hmm. But it is very good. It's a, it's actually a really good thing to be able to do. I mean, the internet has let a lot of like creators, artists and musicians and all kinds of people like do this same thing where you can exist outside of a record label or like a publishing house and you can just make your own brand online and eventually just totally make stuff online. Yeah. It's um I I I'm thinking lately about Defector, which we've mentioned before, mm-hmm. our friends and former colleagues who used to be at Deadspin then left and then started their own site. That's an yep. interesting example of this because they are each well known, like some of them very well known, like Drew McGarry is like just really well known as as a writer and a personality. As a collective, they're 
also known in a different way. And that I thought was really cool that they were able to say, we are all together, the people who made this thing that you love, and we're going to make a new thing and it's going to be our thing and you should support Mm -hmm. us. And they got the support they needed. And I think that's really interesting like i've i've almost never seen that happen i've seen plenty of people it was a, do yeah very unique situation do, i thought that to was have really that cool. spark of dead spin it, it was a very unique situation and have that yeah. story so, and go yeah. national with the story like everybody knew what happened to them um yeah to so maddie to your point um so yeah i've gotten i mean in the past two weeks alone i've gotten so many friggin' like nasty messages and death threats just I about the cd project red yeah. crunch like reporting uh-huh. on their crunch and like anti-Semitism, I get a how ton of anti-Semitism. Yeah, by the way, but, we've been meaning to bring that up. How dare you? Yeah, yeah I know it's terrible. <laughs> but I want to say, but I have no idea what it's like to get emails about like creepy emails from men who want to who want to comment on my looks or like like ask yeah. who I'm dating or like like so I good. have no idea what that's like. So I'm curious to hear your take on like have you overall do you think it's worth it to be like a public figure as you are? Like, do you think? It's it's worth it for you to kind of have to deal with that shittiness and the creeps um, to be able to take like I mean, sort of to know that like if you if you were fired tomorrow, you would have you would you would have enough of a readership and like the show and like enough of a you have some mm-hmm. power as a public figure. Is that worth it for you? I mean, I do now. I would say it's changed a lot. Like at this point, if I were fired tomorrow, I have enough of a brand that I would be okay. But when the Phoenix went out of business and I had a brand, but no platform, it felt Mm -hmm. really weird because there were like a lot of people who were familiar with my work, but I had no power. And Mm. I feel like that's the part where this gets really strange because it's like, oh, everyone knows my name if I go to an event or whatever because like they've seen a viral tweet I've done or something and they remember me as like the angry feminist gamer or something and (laughs) I I feel like I I experienced that very weirdly when I was a freelancer but at this point I feel pretty differently about it because I've kind of like gone around the bend multiple times on the topic and just been like okay I'm used to people perceiving me as a public figure, which is something that takes some getting used to. And I'm a Mm -hmm. lesser, I have fewer Twitter followers than two of you. So it's probably even weirder for you two when you run into people at a convention who know who you are. But for me, every time it's very weird, but I've gotten used to it over time. And I've just been like, oh, they're not reacting to me, the person, because they don't know me. They're reacting to like the series of pieces of my personal life that I've chosen to put out there. (laughs) And I can like very carefully titrate what those things are are and I have more control over that than I think I do and I can be very careful about what I choose to say and not say so I guess it's that I've changed and I've gotten over it but also I've had to get used to a lot of things about the job that are crappy but I I think it's worth it in the end I don't know if that's an answer to your question but it's it's I wouldn't change it <laughs> well the reason I ask is because I think that like a lot of aspiring journalists like Callum or like other folks who are out there maybe even yeah. people who are working at game sites but like are kind of semi-anonymous to most readers because they're doing work that doesn't necessarily get them the big byline and and the big feature right, yeah. story and get them a ton of attention on Twitter or whatever I think there's kind of like you have to kind of figure out if you want to pursue like internet fame if you want to pursue building a brand or if you're okay to kind of like just do the work and sometimes people just 
don't have the option. They have to just keep doing the work. But I, I think it's a mm-hmm. really... Or they become an internet brand even if they don't want to. And then they have to deal right, with that. Right, even out of their control. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I, I do think some people have the choice of being like, okay, do I want to be on this podcast? Do I want to be on this YouTube channel? Do I want to sure, start sure. something where my face and my name will be out there? And I think it can be re- a really tough question, especially as a woman um, who is going to have to deal yeah, with that like side of things. Yeah, or like any marginalized person, really. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, think, I think it is really hard. And I, I've think it changed me like I changed the way that I interact with the internet and I I think you two can relate to that more than you might think like Kirk you've talked many times about changing your relationship to social media over the years and I can always relate to you on that I have too like I just don't look at as much stuff (laughs) nowadays Mm -hmm. because I'm like well if I look at certain reddits it's just gonna be people making fun of me or like whatever it may be like there you just you figure out what you can handle looking at and you find the places where you're getting feedback on your work that's valuable to you and like hearing from readers in a constructive way and you learn how to dismiss the other stuff. But yeah, I don't, I don't really, I think Callum's asking a good question here by like, oh, is it possible to do this and be anonymous? I think you can do it. I think there's certain jobs in games journalism specifically where you can get away with it, like more well, tech not reporting, for example, but, like... or like guides writing and like things where having a personality isn't as much a part of it, but game reviews and the kind of reporting Jason does where people remember his name because it's controversial reporting. People are going to know who you are. Like that's, that comes with the territory. To be clear, like Callum is asking if practically, if you could like do it without putting your name on anything. And I don't think that's really possible. Like other than edge, no other outlet does that sort of thing. Um, And I don't think it would be beneficial to a person to do that. Like you want people to know who you are in general. Yeah. Or like creating a pen name or something. I feel like that. That would be very tough. That's the thing. This is like, I just listened to that reply all about Q and QAnon and who Q might be and how there's this whole thing where the person they think might be Q clearly wants to be like, I'm Q, but he can't (laughs) say that he's Q. And I think you would run into that if you were writing under a byline. Yeah, it would be exactly like QAnon. (laughs) No, but it's the the thing where like you have created something phenomenal and then you you want to take credit for it. But the whole point of it is that you can't take credit for it because it's anonymous. So it would be kind of self-defeating because the thing is, if you are just kind of writing guides somewhere and your name isn't really known, you can have a job doing that. But in this industry now, you're going to not have a lot of stability. The stability right. comes from being like, yeah, but I like I have this whole thing that I've a built. Brand. Right. You <laughs> yeah. have to right. build a brand. And it's just I think there's a kind of a nostalgia based into this question, looking back at just the yeah. work like that's not really the work of journalism as we think of it in terms of just doing the reporting, like writing the review, like doing the writing, being a good writer, being a good editor, like doing that work. It's this whole other thing. That's this like social mm-hmm. PR. Are you funny on Twitter? Right. Like, like how funny? Yeah. Right. And yet that is an important <laughs> skill set for a modern journalist is just a way that journalism has changed and kind of grown almost. It's like this growth on the outside of like traditional old school journalism. And it just, it can't go back. Like the industry is what I know. it is. It so. But, is. but the, the thing, I mean, you guys are talking about this as if it's a negative thing or maybe as if it's a neutral <laughs> thing. But Kirk to, and I to, don't like Twitter very much. Well, to really the credit of like the brand building, I mean, I think it gives the individual, like I said before, so much more power than they had in the past. I completely agree with you. I'm, I'm not, I don't True. think of this as a negative thing. It's something that okay. I do happily i really like interacting with people online i mean i'm pretty extroverted and i think this is i largely have fun and you know that's for a lot of different reasons but but well this is it's not an entirely negative thing at all yeah yeah well you're you're a much more positive you have a lot more positive interactions like you you probably (laughs) you know i don't want to get in fights with people on the internet i don't get a lot of value out of that which is yes 
which I'm very jealous of. But the the <laughs> point is, the point is that like I do think there is like a lot of value to being able to be like, okay, if I if I get fired from GameSpot tomorrow, I know that I as a person like have this mm-hmm. ability to yeah. take power on myself. Or if I get fired from IGN, whatever, I don't want to pick on an individual site. But yeah, and I think that like. 20 years ago that was so like people maybe knew Woodward and Bernstein but like people weren't following like individuals maybe. the way they are now <laughs> yeah maybe and I think that the fact that more readers are able to follow individuals on Twitter and like learn individual names and not just like the super famous people the super famous journalists and critics and whatever people who are doing your favorite podcast but like also if you go on Twitter you can follow the entire staff of, of your favorite gaming mm-hmm. website and like get to know the people you might not know otherwise the social media managers and the the guides writers and mm-hmm. people who are doing really great work but like more anonymously and even that has power and I think it can like is ultimately a really good thing for journalists and it's too bad that it has to come coupled with this creepiness and toxicity that the internet stokes, yeah, some of that, And but... some of that is the social media platforms themselves. Like if they were yes. better, then this whole thing would be better. And any of this? Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. It, shouldn't, it shouldn't really be like this for journalists. Right. Like it doesn't, Twitter does it not have to be Twitter. It doesn't have to work the way that Twitter works. <laughs> That's why I'm yeah. bullish on newsletters. And I know, Maddie, you, you think... No, newsletters kind of are cool. I mean, they're they're trendy. But I also, I remember I, being bullish about Patreon 10 years ago for the well, same Patreon reason. Well, Patreon is still... I mean, Kirk is... Kirk is making a living off Patreon. And I have a newsletter and it's great. So yeah, like those two yeah. things are both, are both I'm, really cool. I'm obviously in favor of it. We're sure, sure. on an audience supported show right yeah. this very moment. Oh yeah. Here's the audience supported. Thing. Hell yes. But, but yeah, I mean the fact that it's possible for people to, to use those platforms is great. Okay. Let's get to the next question. This is from Alex and I will read us Alex's letter. On this week's, this was a few weeks ago, Triple Click, you had praise for Game Pass, Xbox Game Pass, not only as a business model, but on the consumer side as well. It does seem like a great deal on paper, but when I take my own psychology into account, I wonder if I'd be better off buying games the old-fashioned way, one by one. When I spend 20 to $60 on a single game, I tend to take my time going through it, exploring and trying things out. I also usually achieve some measure of completion, whether that's finishing the main story or 100%ing it. But when I buy multiple games at once through Humble Bundles, Steam Sales, or Apple Arcade, I feel some anxiety when playing any given game. I always have some other game I could be playing, so if I'm not maximizing my fun, huh, then I feel like I should be playing another game that I just bought, and if I'm not speeding through each game, I won't have time to play all the ones I want to. Somewhat paradoxically, this means I have much less fun playing through any given game than I otherwise would have. This is much less of an issue when playing 2-10 to hour indie games that can be played through in a few nights, but I rarely complete AAA games that I get through these sorts of bundles. The Elder Scrolls 6 has been my most anticipated game for approaching a decade, so I want to experience it in the best way that I can, and I don't think that will be through Game Pass. Do y'all experience similar issues, or is this a personal problem? Oh, Alex. First of all, you're not going to experience The Elder Scrolls Six for like 10 more years anyway. Yeah, so you'll be a different person. Um, yeah, I totally experienced this. Um, oh, yeah. So, well, I get a lot of video games for free. We all do. Um, mm-hmm. Through various press passes and we get sent codes by PR. And so, mm-hmm. th- you know, I have a similar experience to having Game Pass, which is pretty cheap, but it's the same kind of thing where like you just get a bunch of games and you're like, well, now I can kind of play, you know, whatever, all three of these brand new games and I didn't really invest any money in them or choose them. I just have the option to play them all. And mm-hmm. I, I have definitely found that when I've been like, you know, oh, I, I just need to pick a game to play of these three that I don't have codes for and haven't reached out about. I'm just going to buy one and play it. That it, yes. it does change the way that I think about the game. I, I, I think Animal Crossing was one where I just was like, I'm just going to buy this game. And I bought it and 
it was cool. Like I, I, I felt like, well, I'm going to play through the whole story because I paid $60 for this thing. And then I did huh. and was glad I did because it was a good game. I just think it's funny that we've gotten multiple questions from people about maximizing their fun, yeah, not only because yeah. of the network we're on, but also because I, it's an anxiety I can relate to so I much so, because sure. it's, it's not even just the subscription trend of games nowadays which is great largely and like what i always wished games would start doing is having subscription features but it's also just like even within a game am i maximizing my time well enough and am i really enjoying my free time as much as i possibly could be because everything in the world is terrible so i need the free time the leisure time to be as good as it can possibly be i don't know if that's the wavelength you're on alex but it's the wavelength (laughs) i'm on so yeah i i definitely can relate to this and i also also experience that that sensation of this is the game that I'm buying so it's the game that's really special to me mm-hmm. I think I also bought Animal Crossing I feel like I remember buying Breath of the Wild at the time and not getting a code for it and just playing it on my own time and I don't think I was covering it I think I was only writing about esports at the time so it was like a very special like nothing mm-hmm. to do with my job game that I was just playing in my leisure time um, and you just have a different relationship with a game if, if you approach it that way. But if you're just dipping in and out, I, I think people probably imagine that because we get codes for games, it must be just like a, a wealth. And of course it is. It's it's very prestigious to be able to get free games. But you do end up in this weird mindset where you're like, well, I can just play this game for a few minutes. I got it for free. But like, are you really experiencing it and enjoying it and giving it the right. chance that it deserves in, in those few minutes or are you just kind of like dipping in and out? I don't know. <laughs> Jason, what do you think? Well, I mean, uh, it's up to the game to convince you to, to like keep playing <laughs> after a few true. minutes, right? I mean, yeah, if a fair. game really, I mean, everyone should have the option of demoing games for like a few minutes, but I That was the magic of demos back when demos were a thing. That was well, a- so yeah. that's the nice thing about Game Pass is like if mm-hmm. a game doesn't hook you, then it doesn't hook you. And I do, I do relate to those anxieties. I have sort of a different anxiety because I've gotten back into Final Fantasy 14, which costs X dollars, $15 right, or whatever yes. it is a month. And so then you feel this anxiety of like, oh man, I should be playing this because I should be maxing out the time that I'm mm-hmm. I'm paying for every month. Um, but I mean, you you can't really think about that it that way, or else you have to think of like, oh, I'm paying for Netflix every month. I should be watching Netflix every hour of the day. But whatever. Um, <laughs> I'm sure Netflix would love that if you yeah, thought of it. Yeah, that that'd way. be fine. <laughs> um, I actually think that like with Game Pass, I think that's the big advantage is like you can kind of sample and see what hooks you and what doesn't. And oftentimes, I mean, there are a lot of games, obviously it's a running joke that like, oh, it only takes 40 hours to get to the good part of this game. Only stick with it for five hours and this RPG will really hook you. But with uh, with Game Pass, I mean, I, it does let you sample a lot of things that you might not try otherwise. And maybe you'll discover some gem that you wouldn't have spent $60 on and then you'll get really into it. And I think that yeah, is a huge there, plus. The commitment factor, though, is a part of the thing. Like the fact that the Game Pass or any subscription service, it gives you all the games and you can sample. But then you don't have to make that decision to like actively right, commit to the game. That's the issue. Right. It does really change the experience because then the whole time you're playing, even if you're 10 hours in, which I've had this experience for sure where you're kind of thinking do i do i really want to be playing this you've been playing it for 10 hours like you've been playing it multiple nights and yet still 
you can find yourself being like, mm, maybe I should go play something else. It would suck even more if you spent $60 on that game and then you're like, oh man, I feel like I have to play this to get my money's yes. worth. Broadly speaking, that's true, but... I don't there know, because I, I feel like when you're... Do you, yeah. do you guys remember being a kid and like you bought the game so you may as well beat it? Like right. I still have like stupid but fond memories of like purchasing a game that wasn't actually good. Yeah, and yeah. Just but that's because like, well, you're a kid when you're an adult it. and you've limited free time. It's a very different world. You have more money than you do I mean, time yeah. in general. If you're an adult and you have disposable income, you probably have Game Pass. But also <laughs> I do understand the sensation of, yeah, okay, you're 10 hours into a game. It hasn't gotten that good yet, but it's not that bad. Do you keep playing and see if it gets really good later and it's worth you playing right. 30 hours to beat it or 60 hours to beat it and you would be really grateful to yourself for having done so? Or do you just like try a bunch of other games on Game Pass and you never really get past that initial hurdle? You ask the internet. You check the internet if it's worth so, playing. Okay, so I have a thought here and it is, this is just something I'm thinking right now and it's going to sound very like consumerist. But Great. Um, So Love Alex it. is asking about The Elder Scrolls Six, which I joke it's going to come out in 10 years. It'll come out at some point. Is there something to be said for those like steelbook collector's editions? This is sort of similar to movies because if you get yourself, if it's the most anticipated game in the world for you and you get Mm -hmm. yourself this kind of, you know, really nice physical thing that you have and then you set up like, I don't do that. I don't buy those. I don't just see the value in them. And like I said, I get a lot of games free, so I'm not going to go buy the collector's edition, but I get the ritual around that. And I get why having the cool stuff that comes with the cloth map, so to speak, helps Mm -hmm. you kind of be kind of emotionally bought in to the experience that you're going to have with this 120-hour game. So maybe that's one thing to think about when it's your, especially when it's like your most anticipated game ever and you know you're just so excited for it and you can't wait. Yeah. And then if it's really bad, you can cry onto the collector's (laughs) edition. Right. Right. You use the map as like a tissue. Or it'll have some resale value down the road. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so Alex is saying that like he rarely completes AAA games that he gets through these bundles because he feels like he has to juggle them and maximize his fun and and, um, won't have time to play all the ones he wants to if he doesn't get through them all. That's not going to happen to you with Elder Scrolls Six, Alex, because you <laughs> you are like feverishly anticipating that game, and you're going to want to spend every hour playing. That's it. a good point. Like that too. doesn't happen with games that you wind up loving or like you're highly anticipating, and that doesn't happen with us either. Like the three of us, when we get the next Horizon or whatever other like huge game that we're all anticipating, um, we're going to sink right into it. And even though all of us have access to like tons of other games, if we want, we're all still going to be diving into that game mm-hmm. um, because it's a game we really want to play. And I think the the bigger issue that Alex is facing is that he's sampling all these AAA games and maybe none of them are really that great or none of them are really hooking him the way that a game should yeah, be. Maybe hooking. they're all bad games. So they're you all that, Alex? Maybe the games yeah. are the problem. <laughs> you should play some good games. Play better games. That's no, Elder Scroll <laughs> 6, do not worry. Even if you get Elder Six, Scroll 6 on Game Pass, I have a feeling you will not play anything else for two months because you'll just be <laughs> immersed in that game none of us will man skyrim we'll was a good ass video game all right why don't yeah, we uh, cool. why don't we take a break and then we'll be back with one more thing hey i'm dan mccoy i'm Stuart wellington and i'm elliot kalen together we're the flop house a podcast where we watch a bad movie and then talk about it Movies like Space Hobos, Into the Outer Reaches of the Unknown and the Things That We Don't Know, the movie, and also, who's that grandma? Zazzle Zippers, Breakdown 2, and Backhanded Compliment. Elvis is a policeman. Baby Crocodile and the Happy Twins. Leftover Potatoes? Station Wagon 3. Herbie Goes to Hell. 
New episodes available every other Saturday. Available at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Bye. Bye. Hey, I'm Jared Hill, co-host of the brand new Maximum Fun podcast, Fan Time. And I'm Travel Anderson. I'm the other more fabulous co-host. And the reason you really should be tuning in. I feel the nausea rising. To be Fan is to be a big fan of something, but also have some challenging or anti-feelings toward it. Kind of like Kanye. We're all fans of Kanye. He's a musical genius, but like, you know. He thinks slavery is a choice. Or like the real Housewives of Atlanta. Like, I love the drama, but do I want to see black women fighting each other on screen? Hell to We're tackling all of those complex and complicated conversations about the people, places, and things that we love. Even though they may not love us back. Fanti, Maximum Fun, podcast. And we are back. Kirk, Maddie, let's do one more thing. Kirk, you want to start us off? Sure. My one more thing is Facebook. Specifically, I don't want to play that. (laughs) Best game ever. (laughs) It's a brand new game. It's a hot video game. Get the most likes. Uh, It might be selling your data. Don't worry about it. Okay, so I am uh, going to be playing VR games on the new Oculus headset, which I pre-ordered when it was announced and just arrived. It's actually sitting over here. I haven't opened it. Oh, that's exciting. The Quest 2, which is a freestanding VR headset. I've never had one of these before. It also can plug into your PC, so you can play games like Half-Life Alex, which I really loved, or I really want to play this Star Wars Squadrons on it. So it can be a kind of wired PC, but it, or a wired headset, but it can do wireless. Apparently it's pretty great. A lot of the reviews have said it's good. Ars Technica, I should note, did not say that it was good, so I read kind of all the reviews. But I decided, mm-hmm. what the hell, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pre-order this thing. Um, I reviewed the Oculus Rift, the first one for Kotaku, and I've had that headset set up this whole time. Like when I'll talk about VR games on the show, that's what I'll play. But this is the first time I bought a VR headset. And a thing that is true of this headset is that you need to have a Facebook account to use it. This has been the subject of... Yes, (laughs) I am right there with you. This has been the subject of much um, consternation. Debate, yes. yes. Among people who like VR, because this it's very cheap. It's a $300 or $400, depending on how big it is, which is very cheap for a full, it's like a controllers and a headset. Not very, very cheap. It's Facebook is clearly subsidizing this thing because it's probably not as nice as like the $1,000 Vi- or Valve one, but it's, it's pretty good. So I deleted my Facebook account um, earlier this year. It's been disabled for two years, but then over the summer, I was like, I'm just going to delete it forever because I've... It's probably the data thing. I'm not really a fan of a lot of things they do. It was also Plenty just... Of good I, reasons to delete your Facebook. Yeah, I didn't like using Facebook. I didn't want to be on there anymore. Um, I got more out of Twitter. And I actually still use Instagram, which is owned by Facebook. So, like, I actually really like Instagram now. So, it's kind of like... It, Jokes you know, on I'm, you. Yeah, yeah like, I, I have, I'm in the <laughs> Facebook ecosystem. Like, they know who I am. I mean, you just um, bought an Oculus Quest, so, like... No, yeah, no, no, right. But, I mean, I before that, I had actually destroyed my Facebook account completely. Right. So, now I'm <laughs> sitting there... Thinking, okay, for when I ordered it, I thought, oh, I can keep using my Oculus account, no Facebook. Turns out you can't do that with the with the Quest 2, so you need to, I need to make a new one. So I'm kind of thinking, okay, do I want to use um, Emily's Facebook account? And then, But then I'm looking at Oculus, and they're like, this is going to be your permanent thing, and like you can't ever untie it, and it's tied to your identity. And I was like, I don't want to really mess with this with somebody else's identity. Like That just could cross wires. So I decided to make a Facebook account that is literally just... Um, Kirk's Oculus account. Yeah, it's yeah. like, it's, it's no me. And it has to be you. And a, and a thing, it's just made me reflect on how these really big tech companies with their accounts, 
you have to have an account to do so many things. In this case, it's going to be like all the Oculus games that I own and the hardware that I bought are tied to this and it won't turn on without it. I'm sure hopefully at some point someone will hack the thing or something, but it won't turn on without a Facebook account. <laughs> For and now, yeah. <laughs> Apple, Facebook, you know, Google, all these accounts, increasingly it feels less like an account, like a user account that you sign up for and almost more like citizenship to a nation. And it feels like I like renounced my citizenship to the Republic of <laughs> Facebook. And I was like, okay, I'm no longer a citizen. You know the way that you can become not a citizen of America mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. And now I'm kind of saying like, never mind. I'm, I want to be a citizen. I just like don't want to live there nope. anymore. I need my passport back. <laughs> and, and there is this feeling where like I, if I, I, it was kind of hard to sign up and I was running into some technical problems. I was sort of wondering, am I hitting errors because does part of my account that I deleted still exist because it takes them a long time to delete things? And it just made me think about how uh, about what it means to have those accounts, like what it, what it is to have a Facebook account and all of the things that are tied to that. And then also my Google account and my Apple account and my Steam account. And we kind of just take it for granted that we'll always have these accounts. But deleting one is a way bigger deal than it probably should be. <laughs> like, yeah, it's almost impossible now. It's almost like the, impossible. The more robust they become. Well, Google, yeah. Google especially. Yeah, I mean, Google is even bigger than Facebook. Google especially, because if you use the Google ecosystem, I mean, I use Google Drive to write books and articles and stuff. I can right. never delete my Google. And my Gmail like is, is many years old and goes back many, many years. And it's years. not a huge deal if you just use the service and don't, and don't really have any problems with it. But the minute right. you start to go outside of the very easy to stay within, you know, box, right. it becomes really clear really quickly that actually like this is very, these companies are very powerful. They control a uh-huh. whole lot of stuff and you really <laughs> buy in when you're signing up for all these accounts. So it's just something I've been thinking about. That reminds me, that reminds me of that great series that Kashmir Hill did for Gizmodo about like yes. cutting ties with all the, like trying to cut her life out of mm-hmm. Apple and Facebook and Amazon yeah. and Google. And how hard it is. We'll link it in the show notes because it's yeah. pretty great. Yeah, yeah, we'll link it. Is it. Great. So I'll talk about the Quest 2 next week probably as my one more thing. Cool. I haven't plugged it in yet, but it'll. I think it'll be cool. And hopefully it'll be awesome. worth making a Facebook account. <laughs> um, so my wife and I and baby and my in-laws, we went upstate to upstate New York. We got an Airbnb for the past week. We were just there on vacation. Um, pretty fun, pretty chill, pretty lots of farms and stuff. It was a really nice. rural part of upstate. It's funny, like the city is obviously the city, but you go like an hour and a half north and suddenly yeah. you're in farm country. It's pretty wild. Um, but anyway, so um, we were there. Um, there were a bunch of books in the Airbnb and all, all I was playing, by the way, was Hades, which we will talk about a lot next week. That game <laughs> yeah. is so yeah. friggin' good. It's by cool far game. my game of the year this year. But um, uh, I've, I like on a whim, I just like grabbed a book um, and uh, from their library, like was looking through the books and I was like, oh, hey, a new Dan Brown book that I haven't read before. <laughs> and I remember when I was in high school, um, I, I have this vivid memory of like my senior year of high school. We all went on a trip. We were all in Israel for a couple of months as part of like my Jewish school experience. And we were all passing around all the Dan Brown books. So this was when the, the Da Vinci yeah, yeah, Code yeah. was like going course, super viral. Yeah. And so it was like, oh, do you have a copy of Da Vinci Code? Okay, like, Angels, and, Angels Demons. and Demons like, yeah. for your Da Vinci Code. <laughs> I read, and I read them all. And I remember them just being so fun, like such fun page turner books, as awful as some of the prose and dialogue and like characterization Mm -hmm. was. They were just so fun to read. So I was like, okay, what's this new Dan Brown book like? And of course, it's like a page turner and you start reading and you're like, oh man, I have to see what happens next. (laughs) He does this thing. It's like book clickbait because a chapter will end. A chapter will end. Well, like, and then he saw the text. 
and it changed everything. <laughs> and, like, it won't tell you what the text is and you won't find out what the text message is yeah, for like yeah, another yeah. couple of chapters. And it's like, it's so good in some ways in that it's like a good thriller and like it's carefully plotted and intricate and keeps you reading. And like, that's what a book should do. It should keep you reading. But it's also so bad in so many ways that you're kind of hate reading it. But I enjoyed it. I've got to say, I mean, I enjoyed yeah. it. Like all credit that's to right. Dan Brown. Like he does what he does and like he doesn't try to be anything else than what he, like airport thrillers and airport thriller is, it's it's a book. Was I mean, it's an the, art. I think it was the Hunger Games that did that. The, I think it's a very that oh, kind yeah. of book where every chapter ends with a cliffhanger. And you're like, well, yeah. I mean, I'm going to keep reading and I'll read right. this entire book right. in one I, sitting. I know what happens. <laughs> I got to say, so a cliffhanger is different than like withholding information. And mm-hmm. I think I think you'll never a, believe what's in the next chapter. Yeah, there's like there's a certain art to cliffhangers. And also these are all like valid literary techniques. But like there's someone I've been thinking a lot about fiction writing recently because I really want to do some more fiction writing now that I have Two, now that I've farted out two nonfiction books, I really right, want right. to write a fiction the, book. Make the transition. Pivot to fiction. You want to write an airport novel, you think? Yeah. <laughs> I would totally read a Jason Schreier airport I do. Yes. I, no, I kind of do. No, uh, but I've been thinking a lot about structure. And there's a lot of like in storytelling, there's like an art to writing good cliffhangers and not making them feel fr- making them feel enticing, but not frustrating. Sometimes they feel really frustrating when it's like like a piece of information that they're deliberately withholding from you as opposed to like a twist in the story or like a wrinkle or like wondering what's going to happen to a character, like leaving a character hanging off a cliff, literally cliffhanger versus like and then the character like found something and you won't believe what it is. And that sort of shit is like really annoying. It can be done artfully, I guess. Yeah, but yeah. like in this book, I found it particularly annoying, but it made me want to keep reading. So it, did the so it worked. Right, the cl- right. Clickbait works. Clickbait works. Maddie, what's your one more thing? Okay. So I don't know if you two have booted up animal crossing lately, no. but there's a Halloween update. I've heard you can grow pumpkins in the game. Now oh, it's freaking adorable. I haven't, I haven't opened my animal crossing. Sounds spooky. For weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, my girlfriend Dina has been playing it this entire time. Oh, that's awesome! As longtime ask. listeners know, yes. Dina's island is beautiful. It's perfect. It's pristine. She has every color flower. It's the greatest island you've ever seen in your life. So she's playing the Halloween update, and for Halloween this year, we are all going to try to trick or treat on. All my friends are going to try to go to each other's islands uh-huh. in Animal Crossing. Are you going to all go together? Well, like individually, I guess, because you can give out candy in the game Uh and you can like kind of make a costume and stuff. And it's like the next Uh best thing to going to a Halloween party, which is what we did last year. But of course, it's not going to happen this year. Um, And so that means that I'm I'm going to have to update my island because people <laughs> oh, no. are going to visit You like it. haven't decorated your house. Yeah, I you haven't, haven't decorated, decorated your house. house. This always so happens funny. to me. So yeah, I don't know. The past the past couple of weeks I've been watching Dina water her pumpkins and like set up all of her great uh-huh. Halloween decorations. And then last night she was like, oh yeah, so for Halloween we should visit your island. Have you even <laughs> opened it? And I was like, no, no. no we can't go, we don't what, go what there do you mean? anymore. Why, we, we can't go to my house. We don't go to my house. We what? can't go to my house. <laughs> what are you talking about? We go to your house. Like, what are you, what are you oh, saying? No, you're the friend. You're the girlfriend with oh the God. terrible house. I have no a terrible bachelorette camping tent in Animal Crossing. Uh, I don't have a funny. tent. I have a house. But anyway, we'll see. We'll see if we go to my house or not. I don't think so. But anyway, I'm pretty excited to go trick or treating. I gotta Crossing. fire up Animal Crossing or get get uh, get Emily uh, to play it again because I kind of stole the switch back for Hades. I should give it and just be like, just play some Animal Crossing. You know, it's been a while. It's just so hard to stop playing Hades. Yeah, the pumpkins are so cute in Animal Crossing. Mm. They're real cute. Oh, and it's man. like the first farming mechanic where you can actually grow a thing and it makes me oh, wonder if sure. they're going to 
add in a bunch more farming right, stuff. Kind of Stardew-esque. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's just so hard to not play Hades all the time. I know. Like every, Look, every they got to set up cross-play or cross-save. Then I can play that on PC while Emily plays Animal it's Crossing. It's just so good on Switch. You got to get Zagreus visiting your island. Cross-play between the underworld and also Honestly, I could see it. They're like the two defining... It is kind of Animal Crossing-ish. Yeah. They're the two You're giving gifts and like having conversations with like people in your house. Like... Like it is, it does have similar concepts. It is. They're pretty similar. They're pretty similar. (laughs) Building relationships. (laughs) We've reached the galaxy brain portion of the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) It's like one brain, small brain is like, hey, these is better than Animal Crossing. Like big brain, like they're both good. Like galaxy brain, they're the same (laughs) game. (laughs) (laughs) We've done it. Okay. On that note, it's time to say goodbye for this week. Next week, we'll be talking a lot more about Hades because I have so much to say about that game. Yes, me too. I love it so much. I'm at this point where I'm just like, like clearing pretty much every run yep, that I do because yep, yep. you really nice. you get so much better as you go but we'll save the talk for next week yes um, alright that is all Kirk Maddie farewell for now alright see you both next week bye Triple Click is produced by Jason Schreier Maddie Myers and me Kirk Hamilton I edited and mixed the show and also wrote our theme music our show art is by Tom DJ Triple Click is a proud member of the Maximum Fun Podcast Network, and if you like our show, we hope you'll head over to MaximumFun.org slash join and consider becoming a member. Doing so helps support us and gets you access to an exclusive Triple Click episode each month. Find us online at TripleClickPodcast.com, on Twitter at TripleClickPod, and send email to TripleClick at MaximumFun.org. Thanks for listening. See you next time. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.